Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guests today, Emily Isohauer and Christoph Lenz, they're both here, but Emily is the one who's got his uh, screen up. He's got the papers open. Uh, what have you spotted uh, for us today? So the evolving story around Unipert, the German energy giant, has been an interesting one to follow. A deal was struck uh, earlier this week with the involvement both of the Finnish and uh, German government. So we can talk about that. And if we have time also, we can learn why a Swiss federal councillor was forced to uh, down his plane in France earlier um, this summer. Yes, a little bit of a talking point uh, here in this country. Also, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will have the latest news from London and will also have the latest from Japan. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be bringing you the latest from Japan. Also going to be heading to Reykjavik to have the latest from the newspaper Morgan Bladed as well. It's the 24th of July, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. Good morning from a uh, very sunny, very summery, sort of high summer, uh, Zurich. Very happy uh, that we've got uh, Christoph Lenz of Das Magazine from Tagus Anzeiger here. Uh, and also Emily So of course, a very, very a regular uh, voice around the table. If you need anything in the world of conflict uh, mediation, he is your man. He's with the pro- he's the program coordinator uh, for peace mediation at Eteha here in Zurich. Uh, Chris, we should start by saying maybe we should be having a, a farewell party for you because I think our listeners will know that uh, you, you commute up from uh, Bern often to do this program. Now you're going to be heading the other direction. You're off to Geneva. How's how how's how's that going down in the household? Um, in fact, it, we're moving to where my girlfriend's from. So um, that's for that. <laughs> um, but we're uh, we, we had our farewell party yesterday. If my you said the moving vans are coming as well. Uh, they're they're coming on Thursday. We've had our farewell party, so it's um, saying goodbye to the dull and lovely city of Bern after 19 years for me. Yes, but really, really dull or, or no? I mean, are you are you just make, are you're there is some excitement to be going to a city with more vibrancy and I mean and of course listen this is a point of debate as well because of course you know people in Zurich are you know are not huge fans of Geneva and maybe vice versa but I know that I see a lot of uh, the Genevois crowd sort of coming up here at the weekend but maybe you'll be able to unpack this for us uh, once you spend a bit more time there well of course uh, in Zurich people believe that Zurich is the only place you can live in in, in Switzerland no in the world I think <laughs> in the world in fact exactly and who would know better than you Tyler um, but uh, Bern is it's it it, it, well, it always seemed to me like the bun of the Germany in the like 1960s, quiet, sleepy um, diplomats, uh, functionaries like, um, but but with a very good quality of life because it's so small and it's so cozy and nice and green, and so now I'm going down. To Geneva, which is a bit more vibrant and which is, as they say in, in the Swiss German part of Switzerland, like the tidiest city of France. <laughs> now, uh, is, is he being fair, unfair? I mean, of course, you've spent time in all of these places up and down the country. Um, so Zurich is, of course, my city in, in, in Switzerland. But I have to say I have a very positive kind of connotation attached to Bern, and that's probably due to me having visited the city mostly for embassy parties for reception so i have a rather positive perception of Bern as a lively uh, fun city to be in but that's partially selection bias in terms of the events that i've attended there 
Now, you've also returned from points north. Uh, you've been up in, uh, of course, Finland. Uh, I, I'm curious because, you know, for the the weeks and months running up to things, uh, we've been talking around this table, uh, Emily, about, uh, of course, you know, would they or won't they in terms of uh, Finland, of course, joining uh, NATO? Uh, of course, we know this is happening now. What, what what's the conversation been like in the sauna when you've been up in in Finland uh, and and also knowing that I mean this this is a, a radical shift and also at the same time you know even listening to the news headlines uh, of course you know the ongoing you know rhetoric that we hear of course uh, to the border from from the east. Um, so I think first of all I think the Finns are very busy in their summer cottages. I think the main news in Finland has been a walrus that made it made its way from Norway all the way to someone's backyard in Finland. So that gives you a sense <laughs> of also summer break in the Finnish news. But uh, on a more serious tone, it's definitely being talked about. I, I think consensus still prevails in terms of Finland joining NATO. There's broad support to, uh, for that. I think the latest polls have it close to 80%. But there is a bit more nuance there. So for instance, this trial bilateral agreement between Sweden, Finland and Turkey, I think the latest poll has um, less than 50% of Finns supporting that uh, memorandum of understanding. So again, when it comes to the potential role of Finland in NATO, what that means at the practical level, that's where some of the NATO hangover, as it's being talked about, will come in um, once perhaps the summer break in the Finnish news cycle um, ends. So just uh, talking about points east, uh, we want to head that direction now. Uh, last Sunday, and of course across the week, we've been checking in with our two uh, colleagues, uh, Chris Chermack, our news editor, uh, also uh, our senior uh, radio producer, well, Carlotta Rabello. Uh, they've been in Ukraine all week. Uh, I think we're catching up with them on a train uh, right now. Good morning, uh, Carlotta and Chris. Uh, I hope you're there and I hope we have a signal. Dobre day, Tyler. Good morning. Uh, we are somewhere on the way to Chernivtsi in the west south of the country. Uh, we're now uh, two hours away from ending our 15-hour train ride. And of course, Chris is right here next to me. Good morning, good. Tyler. Yes, I'm sure you can hear the train noise in the background from our trip. So yes, it's uh, 15 hours, two hours left. So just to paint a bit of a picture for us, uh, last week, of course, you were heading, you were eastbound, uh, you were just crossing the Polish border, you've been in Kyiv this week uh, and, and points el- elsewhere. On a Sunday morning, uh, you know, at the end of July, uh, who, who is shuttling around on a train uh, in, in the Ukraine, certainly on the, the tracks that you're on? Well, I mean, on, on this trip, essentially, we've, we've been traveling the trains, as you know, quite a, quite a bit at this point. Chernivtsi itself is a spot in the southwest. It's on the border with Romania. And it is a place that many people have relocated to. I think they've gotten, from what I heard, about 200,000 additional people relocating to Chernivtsi. Many of them are from Kiev themselves. And so at, that, at this point, when it comes to this sort of stretch between Chernivtsi and Kiev, it's mostly people from Kiev, uh, because I think one of the senses we got also being in Kiev is now is a time where people... They're not necessarily returning all of them to Kiev, but they are visiting again. They're coming back. And so you do have people from Chernivtsi, including, for that matter, our own Ukraine correspondent, Olga Tokaryuk, who was with us uh, in Kiev this week, who is has re- relocated to Chernivtsi but spent a week in Kiev. That's sort of what you're seeing now. Other people, of course, for the summer have returned to Kiev at this point. Um, and and but they're all still sort of wondering whether they should do that permanently. There's still a bit of a sense of 
you know, something could still happen here. As it, as it happens, for that matter, um, you know, we, we experienced one air raid siren while we were in Kiev um, on Thursday. And then now, just as we were leaving, as we got on this train, I still have the app. There's, of course, an app for air raid sirens here on my phone. And we had three overnight uh, in Kiev. So that does give you a sense that things are still more uncertain there. And Chernivtsi is, you know, the, the safer place at the border. It's, a, it's an old European city, formerly Habsburg city. So on a personal note, it'll be interesting to see that history for me as an Austrian. Um, but, yeah, it is sort of the place that people are somewhat gathering to be further away from the direct targets. Uh, Chris, I just want to ask you very quickly. We were, of course, uh, covering this in the news headlines, this this real, I guess, sense of, of maybe doubt being cast uh, upon uh, the opening uh, of, of certainly clear waters uh, for grain shipments to, to of course, leave uh, the Ukraine. Uh, this is, you know, an extraordinary piece of broker- brokering by the UN, by, by Turkey as well. But, of course, uh, a series of missile attacks uh, on Odessa uh, cast a, a bit of a shadow on things. How has this news, um, how has it been received uh, since, of course, it's broke on, on Friday? So, yes, exactly as you describe it, I think there is a sense of dread here. It was interesting that even before the agreement was signed, we spoke to some people in Kiev who said, you know, it had been quiet that week, as I said, until Thursday night and um, or Friday morning. And they said sort of just you wait, wait until the deal is signed. That's when you're going to hear the air raid sirens again. That's when the missiles are going to start. And that is indeed what happened. And not only did it, was it missile strikes in general, but they, you know, it was an attack on the port of Odessa. And so, yes, that was taken very much as a clear sign here um, that this deal is is not secure. Um, we did speak briefly, actually, to the at an event to the foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba yesterday, and he was making this point about the grain deal, sort of putting it on the international community as well, on the UN and on Turkey to say they really have to guarantee that this is going to be a clear deal at this point. He was also saying that they would not have made the deal if it had meant anything about either, you know, surrendering their defensive capabilities, their ability to defend different parts of the country. So in that sense, he was saying even, yes, this was, you know, a a good piece of diplomacy, as you say, a deal was reached, but at the same time, they are going to defend their country and they were ready, if you will, for attacks that might come despite this deal as well. Uh, Carlotta, just uh, before we we let you carry on with your journey, what's been outstanding for you this this week? Uh, First time venturing uh, in, uh, now outbound. Uh, You've met a a variety of people uh, and uh, there's been some really some some great uh, dispatches uh, from from both of you this week. Uh, But what stands out for you? Uh, I thought it was quite interesting to uh, venture outside of Kiev. We went to the cities of Bucha and Irpin, who, of course, you might remember from headlines, having been occupied and completely destroyed. And we were lucky to get a tour with the deputy mayor there, who, you know, when we met her at City Hall, at the local council, her desk was covered in papers of bodies that still need to be identified, and her role has changed to that. And then 10 minutes later, she told us, let me drive you to my favorite spot in the city. And we were 
in this beautiful park, Butcha City Park, um, with kids jumping in the water, uh, dancing, and uh, as if life hadn't been as horrible as she had just described to us a mere m- few months ago. And for me, that has really stayed with me. This, the, the horrors that this country has endured already feel so distant because of the way people are being resilient and wanting to carry on. We also went to Chernihiv um, two days ago, which is just 50, kilometer, 50 kilometers from the border with Belarus. And um, it's where a lot of the Russian forces came through, through that city. And out of uh, 34 schools, 27 were destroyed. And we visited one of the ones that has reopened. And again, kids were dancing outside, enjoying the summer, falling off their bikes and crying because they scraped their knees. Um, As normal as it could be. We went for a walk around to the area where all the nice cafes and restaurants are for a lunch for ourselves and to speak to a few people. And we met this couple uh, of soldiers and um, we were speaking to this gentleman who now is in the armed forces and up until the 24th of February was a tourism officer. He organized tour guides in Chernihiv. He was planning to bring a group of 30 Ukrainians to Rome um, now in the summer and overnight enlisted in the army and has been protecting his city. And when we met him, he was very positive and, you know, smiling and enjoying a cappuccino outside. And when we asked him, how does he feel about, you know, the fact that he, they were able to repel the troops from the Russian troops from this city, his funny disposition changed immediately to, you know, uh, serious and said, I, I can't allow myself to feel anything because we haven't won this war yet. So is this fine line between enjoying every day as it comes, but still being very much aware that there's still a long road to go. I think that ha- is what has stayed with me the most from this trip. Carlotta Ribello, uh, our senior producer uh, in Ukraine, also traveling uh, with our news editor, uh, Chris Chermak. Uh, thanks very much for that. And uh, Enjoy uh, the rest of your journey, uh, two hours uh, to go. Um, just, uh, Chris, I'm listening to that um, and very much with your, yeah, the, the hat of, of, of course, a journalist and a writer and and also uh, knowing what your editors uh, at your magazine, at the newspapers, uh, have to deliver in terms of keeping this story alive for all of all of the right reasons. Do you think we move into an autumn uh, as well, where there's almost as big a challenge in, in newsrooms uh, in terms of keeping this front of page? Because we already know that a, a certain sense of fatigue will always you know, set, set in uh, with this type of story. Uh, I mean, we've already had like the fatigue seep in. And um, I remember in the first couple of weeks of March, uh, February, March, April, we had every day we had six to eight pages uh, concerning the war in Ukraine. Now it barely makes the, f- the front headlines. Uh, it's just become kind of this dragging feeling that things are moving, but very slowly, things don't really change. And then hopefully, if there is something good to come from this attack uh, on the Odessa port, it's maybe that we remind ourselves what's going on there and how cynical this war is being fought by the Russian side. And um, that maybe we're not, we hear, especially from Germany, we hear there are calls for diplomatic solutions um, that maybe 
Russia isn't um, uh, someone to be trusted in diplomatic uh, relations, and they're not ready for for uh, for a solution. Maybe this is these are the two things that I've been thinking about uh, since I heard of the attacks. Mm. Uh, and Emily, just maybe going back to all, obviously what happened. Uh, certainly, we we're talking about uh, the, yeah the the brokering that happened with with the UN and and Turkey. Um, We've seen sort of Turkey sort of making moves throughout. This has been a bit of a breakthrough for Ankara uh, as well, because, you know, we, we saw all kinds of shuttling back and forth, you know, very, very early on, almost throughout this. So now you have this uh, breakthrough for, for Erdogan. Any any surprise from your side, as someone who watches mediation, uh, that Turkey was able to pull this off? And But also, again, this enormous question mark, as they're saying as well, that there's a lot of skepticism, you know, and, and you know, as, as our correspondents were just saying, that they thought that the missiles would rain down, and indeed they did. So um, Turkey uh, playing a role, uh, less of a surprise. Again, they've had traditionally good ties with both um, Kiev and and Moscow. Uh, Perhaps I would just remind ourselves that it's not even a a deal that's been signed between Kiev and Moscow, but rather um, two different agreements signed uh, by Kiev with Turkey and the UN and respectively in Russia's case. So again, speaks to the lack of trust um, that exists among the partners. So you could very much view this agreement as a confidence building mechanism, a measure that hopefully will build some trust and, and, and pave the way for future more substantive talks. Unfortunately, hasn't done that. Again, a violation of agreement is not surprising. Um, it's more the norm than the exception, in fact. I'd be curious to see if the situation evolves at all once um, Turkish military really is on the ground meant to monitor um, their agreement again then the threshold in terms of Russian violations of the agreement will be a lot higher um, again that's the optimist in me hoping that that will change the uh, dynamics on the ground but again I, I think both sides are very much um, into um, the military battlefield still thinking that they can find a solution militarily I want to bring in uh, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, uh, as well. Um, Andrew, uh, I, I believe you're on the, the far side of the channel where there's also a whole other story about uh, getting getting things, and those things would be cars and people out of ports as well, particularly Dover. Yeah, so I'm still here in the UK. We're, we're hoping to go through the Eurotunnel uh, in, in about a week's time. And speaking to people who were there yesterday, that they were they were waiting several hours to get through. And somebody else said that their their daughter had spent six hours getting through on Thursday. This morning, it's still saying there's a, a two-hour delay to get through the Eurotunnel, but not as bad as it was yesterday. But they're expecting another disastrous day. And the same at Dover. It, it's 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 much better than it was, but they still have these huge delays. And and of course, you know, it's kicked up here as a you know, is this because of Brexit? Probably it now takes three minutes to uh, get the average passenger through. It used to take 60 seconds. Uh, the French are insisting on, uh, as in much of Europe, and stamping everybody's passport when you when you go through. It could be done electronically, but they've decided to stamp everyone's passport. I mean, so it's something to do with Brexit and it's to do with staffing issues. But I think it's just what we're seeing you know, across the tourism industry is this, you know, we, we, we lost so many people at the, at the height of the pandemic and they're just not ready for this huge rush back to travel. Andrew, uh, just I think I think our listeners will, will probably know, and, and we've certainly commented on this many times over the, the last 15 years that you and I have been traveling together. Listeners, Andrew, you know, will, will show up sort of four hours, you know, early for a flight um, where where I like to get there 50 minutes in advance. So, Andrew, I'm surprised that you weren't lined up at Dover already. 
<laughs> Believe me, I've have thought about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I like I like to say my things calmly. I think now though, uh, we're, we're taking a flight this evening to come and, and, and see you, Tyler. But um, I, I, I'm sure it will just be fine. And I'm, I, I must say that I've flown quite a lot in in recent weeks, and. On the whole, it hasn't been as, as terrible as people make you think it's going to be. I've had plenty of flights, actually, that have taken off on time. But you realise the delays are rarely to do with the airline. It's because there isn't a cleaning crew available or they, there's no one to put the food on the plane. So it's, you just have to be a little bit more chilled these days about when it will actually take off. Mm, actually, we're going to be heading to Reykjavik in a moment. One of the best stories I've heard in terms of resilience and travel, someone was flying Iceland Air the other day, and they said that they actually, on the flight, there were three gentlemen uh, in their boiler suits that, that Iceland Air decided to fly with their own baggage handlers, So, they, which I think is such an amazing <laughs> way of just dealing with things and saying, fine, if we can't deal with the ground crew when we get there, passengers are going to have to just get off the aircraft, but at least we'll have their bags on the tarmac for them and, uh, and, and, and away they go. Well, I, I, and, and here I, I would say that most people I know have, have managed to strip back their baggage so that they're just not checking bags if they can. It's, that's, that seems to be the other kind of terrifying thing that goes wrong. But yeah, we had a story here in the papers yesterday about uh, um, a man who was a, had one leg and he couldn't get off the plane because there, no, you know, there was no one at the airport to get him off the plane. So in fact, the, the pilot has now got used to getting these people off the planes. You know, he, he goes and finds the wheelchair. He wheels them off at the end of doing the flight. So it's, it's just a bit <laughs> chaotic but we'll go with it for one summer uh, Andrew, of course, this is, uh, well, we've, we've made maybe many big weeks ahead, but uh, of course, uh, aside from uh, these, these summer stories, which always flare up, and if it's not been heat and now it's been Dover, uh, but of course, uh, we have the, the Tory leadership uh, race, uh, Trust versus uh, Sunak, uh, and, and we, it seems that we're being reminded, and certainly there's a big push if you look at the Times and the Sunday Times, uh, you know, they, they've, they've had a big sit down uh, with Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, reminding uh, you know, everyone of, of his, his, his roots and his policies and, and, and everything that goes, goes with it. Um, from the editor-in-chief's uh, position at Monocle, how, how are you reading this, though? Well, actually, this, this weekend, I think most of the papers seem to be giving both sides uh, a chance at kind of wooing the, the, the party faithful. But actually, when you listen to what they say, it's because it is aimed at the party faithful, it's not aimed at the general reader, it's all a bit hectoring and a bit, you know, arched. Now, you have to remember they've been in power for 12 years. And here you have Rishi Sunak saying, I've got a plan. I've now come up with a plan to take control of our borders. They've been banging on about this for, for 12 years. And, and you think, if they haven't made any progress yet, you know, what, what on earth has been going on? And because also most of the, the people they're appe appealing to, to vote, are older, out in the shires, the things that they're focused on are immigration, and taxation and a slight belief that actually the climate can wait. And I think for younger voters, whether they're right or left, it must just seem very detached from the reality of a, a crisis in the economy, uh, inflation heading rapidly towards 10%. And a, a week, as you point out, Tyler, we, we've had <laughs> rather hot evidence uh, that climate change is a real thing. And now we have all of these, these, these Tory candidates trying to row away from it, saying, no, 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 I, I will be the, the most sceptical even about this.
Andrew, just uh, thinking, of, of course, about the portfo- portfolio of, of Ms. Truss, uh, uh, which is uh, Foreign and Commonwealth uh, Office, uh, one part of it. Are you surprised how little, or, may- or maybe not, um, how little foreign policy, uh, global Britain um, is playing amidst all of this? Because, you know, we come off the back of, obviously, Boris doing his his, his shuttle, you know, role uh, to Kiev. And it's strikes me, I mean, when you look at all the papers, that it's it's really sort of dropped off the agenda. Yes, you know, we're seeing the stories today that Boris will make one last dash to go and see his friend Zelensky. But on, on the foreign policy things, you know, she is trying to raise some issues about this today, but it's just not a vote winner. Unless you're, you know, you're, you're blaming the EU for everything, then it's just not going to be something that kind of plays out well with the, with, with the party. And it, the foreign policy, you know, as far as Rishi Sunak is concerned, it seems to be a, a very small issue. It's just, not, it's just not a good debating point. Stand firm against Russia. She's, you know, she tries to have a go at him about, you know, because he's trade, you know, positive always about every situation that he's been too lenient towards China. But again, I don't think this is an issue that, that plays out as a, as a vote winner. Andrew, just uh, before we go, and this is a little bit of uh, more on, on the House News uh, front uh, as well. You've now, um, it's, it's sort of one week on, you have the Monocle Companion. And for those listeners who don't know, this is a new piece of print that we've done, something just in time for summer. It's 50 essays. It's a, it's a big, thick, hefty read. Uh, I've been sort of looking at uh, the sales results online from our shops, etc. Uh, seems to be uh, flying out, uh, out the door, but a, a moment for a shameless uh, plug from your side as well, uh, reception in London to it? Well, it's just so nice, you know, even in the, the office when a piece of print comes in, seeing the reaction to it. And uh, we got the office copies in this week and we were posting them out to all of the, the essayists and giving them to the people in the office who'd written essays. And people were just excited to get hold of it. There's something about it. And it's, it's a nice format. It weighs, it weighs a nice amount. The paper is rather beautiful. But it has these 50 ideas. They're, they're, they're great companions, whether you're on a, a journey or you're by the lounger. They're, they're, they're demanding, but not too demanding. They're entertaining and they're thoughtful. So they, they give you a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good buffet <laughs> of editorial ideas. But as you said as well, but there's, there is the odd jolt. I think what's nice about it too is that you can sort of go through five and then sort of there is one that sort of makes you snap to attention as well. Yes, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they, they go from, you know, f- um, from fun to serious and they're from about the role of the city to uh, how to run a better business, to, you know, you know, in praise of cultural appropriation, a uh, great, great piece by um, Pallavi Aya that we, that we uh, found, which is about her as an Indian woman, saying that actually she, she gets through her, her life as a, as a writer by actually taking on other cultures and, and she's in praise of that. Even what the Romans did on holiday, uh, there's a nice piece about Aussie ugliness, which is a, a kind of architectural movement and, and appreciating why this ugliness is actually rather beautiful. So they're um, an amazing array of essays. Okay, Andrew, it's 9.30 in London. Uh, you have a flight at about 4.30, I believe, uh, to get to, uh, to Munich this afternoon now. for dinner. <laughs> so I, I don't want to hold you up uh, while, while you pack your carry-on. I will see you in uh, the garden at uh, Schumann's later this evening, our editor-in-chief, uh, Andrew Tuck. Uh, not in the garden, but uh, hopefully uh, in Studio One in London as Emma Nelson with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. A deal to enable millions of tonnes of grain to be transported out of Ukraine has been put in doubt after Russian missiles struck the Ukrainian port of a 
Odessa for President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of barbarism. The World Health Organization has declared the monkeypox outbreak as a global health emergency, the highest alert that the WHO can issue. More than 16,000 cases have now been reported from 75 countries. China has reportedly issued strong warnings about a possible trip by the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. The Financial Times says some of the private rhetoric suggests a possible military response. And more than 30,000 scouts have joined a huge summer camp in the Swiss mountains. The event, which happens once every 14 years, is being partially funded by the country's defence ministry, which is contributing 7 million Swiss francs and equipment, such as tents, blankets and cooking equipment. 80 special trains have also been laid on to transport the scouts who've arrived from all over the world. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, it does beg the question whether the young member of the Nelson household, any thoughts of, um, I'm not sure if there's a flying brigade for the scouts, um, but uh, I wonder if your young Hugos may be yeah, maybe, maybe sort of ready for a kerchief and a, and a fancy hat. Uh, yes, is, 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 is a swift answer to that one. And frankly, I'd, I'd go too. I think he's absolutely ready for this one because I can imagine it being quite character forming. That said, the thought of 30,000 teenagers in one place is something that possibly I really don't want to think about too much. Well, and this has been making. I'm just, oh, Emma, stay there. I want to bring okay. in Christoph because this has been making. I mean, this has like been the big build-up of the summer. I mean, you've got walruses, <laughs> Emily, that are, are have been swimming down the Norwegian coast and ending up in saunas in Finland. It sounds like, and then on the other side, the big summer build-up has been this story about these tens of thousands of scouts who are who are coming, uh, and it, it seems to be a bit of a point of national pride as well. It's, you know, who's getting involved with the logistics, how good SBB has been for laying on the trains. A bit of a moment of celebration, isn't it? Absolutely. It's kind of a, of a display of national uh, pride and uh, craftsmanship and things. We can we can build a metropolis within two weeks in the in the Alps, in the Valais. Now, the, like the, the, the most recent uh, downer was that uh, due to the heat, um, there is a fire ban for the whole area. So yeah, so what's the point of being a scout, right? If you, <laughs> exactly. can't, if you can't light a fire. They have to sing their songs to LED um, lights and uh, roast their sausages on the electric oven. I, 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 I don't know myself. Maybe. Emma, you, I feel as if there's going to be a plethora of stories that are going to come out of this for you. I'm going to follow this incredibly closely, not least because it's not just the Swiss press who are going, about, going crazy about this. The rest of the world is saying, we are sending scouts to Switzerland. There's a group of Canadian scouts who've got stuck in Zurich Airport for a bit. They haven't been allowed to get out. That's another sort of offshoot. But the, the global excitement about, about 30,000 of these little toggled souls heading up a mountain is quite astonishing. I just love the infrastructure. I just love that everyone Everybody has put on all these extra trains and you do it properly. Thank you. Well, this, as, as you're saying, this a, a huge part of the story just has been the logistical infrastructure effort. And as you're saying, it seems it doesn't matter whether I look at any of the, of the papers uh, from from your group or if I look at Blick, and this is the thing that's been going on for three weeks, Emma, <laughs> how they've been, you know, laying planks for vehicles, you know, in case they have to, of course, you know, medevac kids out of there whatever happens uh, this has been a, a huge a huge part of it it, it has and like it, it's even making like it's even uh, influencing politics now the the, the big editorial on saturday in the uh, tagasan saigo um, like marveled at the craftsmanship and teamwork uh, in in the scout uh, movement, and wondered whether our government the federal council would manage to uh, 
put up a tent uh, if they had to, <laughs> <laughs> because like teamwork isn't re- at the moment not exactly what they're um, strong at. No. So. Okay. So just a quick, uh, uh, just a quick survey. Emma, were you ever a, a Girl Scout, Girl Guide? What do you think? Uh, I think I think well, this, I think yes. I think yes. Oh, if only if only no. I could cope with canvas. Okay. Um, I'm I'm firmly a, a a a roof and fully functioning bathroom kind of girl. Sorry okay. about that. All right. But I would be I would, look if it's organised pro- properly. I was just thinking why there is there is scope for not. Let's just not leave the kids to this, please. Can we all have a go? I would be absolutely up for this for for a trip up and out with Monica. We'd have some excellent equipment, I'm sure. Okay, well, you're giving us some ideas for another <laughs> type of con- conference. Concert, Emily, over to you. Uh, I never was, but I did once get to attend a huge scout gathering in somewhere in the Finnish countryside as my brother's plus one, and I still have very fond memories of that. Sounds very modern. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a past in the scout movement, um, but I never got my name because uh, but this like, you never got like the badge to put on your like your sleeve or exactly, wherever you put it exactly why is like this the, um because um the, the, our group leaders um had a fun night in their tent uh, abusing a, a number of substances and they just overslept <laughs> um waking me up and then having the whole ritual of uh, giving me uh, baptizing me in my to my uh, scout name yeah. okay so that's and that was it then. That was it then. <laughs> exactly. Okay. We're going to have. My, gonna my have mom to. pulled me out. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have to uh, to leave it there. We're going to head to to chillier climbs uh, right now. Uh, we're heading up uh, to Reykjavik. I'm uh, very very uh, happy uh, to say uh, that uh, Carl Blundal is uh, there for us. He's the deputy editor of the Morgenbladet newspaper in Reykjavik. Good morning, Iceland. Yeah. Good morning. Happy to be with you. Very good. I'm not sure how many uh, scouts uh, you've had connecting through Keflavik Airport uh, on on their way uh, to Zurich. Hopefully, it's not some of those Canadians who are now stuck uh, at Zurich Airport. It sounds like, uh, but 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 nevertheless, I should I should start with you. Does does the scout movement figure uh, in in Iceland? Yes, it does. It does indeed. And uh, uh, I was a, a scout myself, and my son was a scout for a while. Uh, but uh, even though I'm not active anymore, but uh, we have big scout meetings in Iceland, and I'm sure there are a few scouts who will be attending uh, the meeting we're talking about. Very good. Uh, Carl, let's, uh, if, we're, uh, op- uh, if we're flipping open the screen for the, the Morgenbladet this morning, uh, or, uh, or uh, looking at the front pages, what is making uh, news in and around Reykjavik and beyond today? Well, the headline uh, in yesterday's paper, we don't have a Sunday uh, paper, just a Sunday magazine, uh, is that Iceland Air has taken off again. Uh, that's our national airline. Uh, it's a private airline, though. And uh, when COVID hit, they were on verge of bankruptcy. They had to uh, resort to extraordinary measures just to stay afloat. They may uh, had a stock offering. And people were sort of warning that people would be that investors would be taken for a ride, and they should not do this. But all the same, there was huge interest, and uh, uh, it was a real success. And that allowed them to stay afloat, and uh, now they are making profit again. And uh, so uh, uh, they're doing really well. And uh, this, of course, is a part of uh, the um, uh, upsurge in tourism that has taken place now, so that this year is probably going to be the third most successful year in tourism since uh, uh, yeah we started in tourism and, and do you feel this do you, do you feel this on the street i mean obviously let's let's park uh, two years of covid uh, to, to one side but if you think back uh, to to 2018 and 2019 and if you're 
out and about uh, on a Sunday afternoon or certainly later on a Saturday evening uh, in Reykjavik? Does it does it feel like if you can call them the good old days? Yeah, you can. I mean, definitely. Uh, you you hardly hear Icelandic in the streets in Reykjavik uh, these days because all of the all the Icelanders have taken off for, to uh, warmer climes, and uh, what we have here is basically those who are working in the service industry and and the tourists. <laughs> now, just just on that, uh, and I guess this is a bit of a related story, which is uh, just uh, the surge that you've had in, in the number of new people uh, who have been uh, who are, have settled uh, in in the last year or since the beginning of this year, in fact, uh, f- you know, five thousand uh, new new residents. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Uh, you know, you might have heard at the top of the program that our Christoph Lenz here he's moving from Bern to Geneva. But I mean, as a Swiss, if he wanted to show up in in Reykjavik. Uh, and do his job from there. Uh, how, how difficult is it? Who, who is being allowed into Iceland? Well, the, the uh, influx is mostly from uh, uh, Europe, from the European economic area. Uh, otherwise, you would have to be um, applying, you know, as an for asylum in Iceland. But we still have uh, uh, people coming from other parts of the world. Uh, Venezuela is a uh, We've lost some Venezuelans coming here, a few, a couple of hundred this year, uh, but mainly the, these are uh, immigrants from Poland, and of course we have refugees coming from Ukraine. We have about 1,200 uh, people who have come from Ukraine this year. But listen, we have a lot of uh, American listeners uh, to to this program. Uh, now, if they don't have Icelandic heritage, if they just wanted to show up, but they can certainly, I, is not that there's golden passports, uh, but obviously uh, you don't have to just come as a refugee. There must be an application uh, process uh, as well if you can invest enough in the country. Uh, and, and obviously if you've been, if you've been given a job uh, by a multinational or an Icelandic employer. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, just uh, just before we uh, we go, uh, you've got um, a number a number of other stories that that, that we could uh, we could look at. Um, but one is maybe um, I'll give you a choice of two. You've said uh, we can either talk about the economic situation in the country, or that uh, you know maybe not just figuratively, but uh, but also physically, um, that uh, Iceland is the coolest uh, place in Europe at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's probably uh, that's that's true. Um, but maybe not because uh, um, it's so chic. But uh, the temperature outside here right now is uh, is eleven degrees. Or it's, uh, it's going to go up to sixteen. So uh, if people have had enough of uh, uh, the heat wave in Europe, Iceland is. Definitely the place to come uh, to get some relief from the scorching heat. Okay, so just, but I have to say that you just, okay, it's 11 degrees early in the morning. It's going to go up to 16. You said you can't hear anyone speaking Icelandic on the street. It's because, of course, all the Icelanders, I'd imagine, are somewhere around the Med or on the Canary Islands. Would that be the case? Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Greece, Turkey, the Canary Islands. That's it. Very good. All keeping Iceland air busy. <laughs> uh, very, very uh, good uh, to speak to uh, Carl Blundell, the deputy editor of the Morgan Bladet uh, in Reykjavik. It's just gone at 10.42, uh, oh, 10.43, in fact, uh, here in Zurich. We're going away for a short break off to Tokyo after this. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has been a leading travel destination for so long that it's easy to assume it's a known quantity. Yet it's a country that has an inexhaustible capacity 
to surprise, a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Wherever you find yourself in Spain, you won't be far from an expression of the country's deep commitment to its culture, and it's never been easier to soak up its music, art, literature and traditions. In Spain, art is present at every turn, and culture's taken seriously. Museums, galleries and cinemas are cherished parts of almost every town and city. Great sculptures prowl the streets and stand watch over the beaches. Vast museums house priceless works by Goya, Velázquez and El Greco. Alongside giants like Picasso, Miro and Dali, new artists are nurtured in galleries that serve their cities with cutting-edge contemporary art. And then there's the music. There's far more to Spain than castanets and flamenco. Spaniards know how to throw a party. Some of them last all summer. With a festival for almost any taste, just book your tickets and get stuck in. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. You're back with Monocle on Sunday here in Zurich with me, Tyler Brule. Uh, before we head to Tokyo to speak to our bureau chief there, Fiona Wilson, a little uh, further scan of the pages. Christoph, you saw come uh, across a story which is not just making news in, in Switzerland. Uh, we've had quite a, a high-profile uh, incident in the Dolomites uh, a few weeks ago, but this this focuses on. Yeah, what they're saying are the, are the crumbling Alps. Exactly. It's not only the, the scouts that feel the heat, but also the, the mountains. And like this week, um, mountain guides in several uh, regions of Switzerland have stopped um, taking uh, specific routes because uh, they're just too uh, dangerous. Like for the Mont Blanc, like the Roy Route Royale, they won't be going up there anymore because um, of the of the dangers of rockfall. And it is um, uh, quite serious, and it's. Um, something that can happen that already happened in uh, recent years towards the end of the summer but this year it's just like six weeks earlier and it's um, obviously um, like the, that it, the heat is kind of uh, thawing the permafrost that keeps the, 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 the mountains together. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure if you uh, either you saw the story that was also in, in the NZZ where there, and, and the story touches on this as well, which is talking to two mountain guides. Uh, and they talk about not just obviously the impact of climate, what is happening, but also just the changing profile of people who go climbing today as well. And I think one of the sort of the outstanding parts of the story was saying that you know, the, the, the journalist the journalist asked the question you know, do people pack you know the right things etc and he said because the problem is that in fact is that people are just too overspect over tech he said people actually take too much with them so it's too heavy they get dehydrated etc they've, they've got the best equipment but just too much of it mm -hmm. uh, as, as well i'm not sure if that's a problem for you emily when when you uh, venture out so i'm one of the kind of city people as uh, swiss hikers uh, love to refer to them i go even to the national park in switzerland uh, with my normal sneakers which is perfectly fine i would say thanks to the great care that the swiss um uh, have when it comes to the path so more often than not, I would say proper, proper hiking gear is not needed unless you're really doing some climbing and going into very steep um, paths. But even in the National Park of Switzerland, you can get away with rather light gear and you have a hut where you can stay, where you get your food. So I'm part of that school of thought that less is more um, and you don't need to overdo it in terms of equipment. Uh, what do you have for us uh, story-wise? Uh 
as well. Anything from I'm I'm still sort of obsessed with this walrus story, but we we, we can come back. <laughs> There's to some that. great pictures of I, him I having bet. ruined some you know equipment on someone's backyard, etc. Uh, but maybe let's start with Alan Berset and, and and then go to Uniper. So um, one story, a fun one, again a summer story we've been following quite avidly here in Switzerland, pertains to uh, one of the Swiss federal councillors, Alan Berset, who's the Interior Minister and in fact the incoming president as well. Um, so we found out that he has a pilot's license, so he flies as a hobby. Um, since 2009 and apparently um, the Swiss aviation world has been amazed by this new they weren't aware of this hobby of his uh, but he on July 5th ventured into France um, according to his plan he was going kind of through central France to the very western part and he crossed into uh, military airspace so essentially over a military um, airfield and was forced by the French air police um, to uh, down his plane and he was even questioned by the gendarmerie and uh, eventually he was allowed to continue uh, flying back to Switzerland. Uh, but this became a big issue because normally for these types of incidences you are issued at least a warning potentially a fine and in some instances there have been some instances for instance in Germany where the pilot's license is taken away uh, but this week after a lot of reporting on this story we have learned from the French Federal Department of Home Affairs that no legal proceedings will be taken against the federal councillor. And this, I mean, this was kind of, this is, was a bit of a story of national embarrassment. Of course, it played out much bigger uh, in Switzerland. There was, I think, also being the summer season in France, the French weren't too <laughs> bothered, uh, you know, by uh, this aircraft uh, that, that ventured into the airspace. But nevertheless, as we were just saying during the, the, the breakfast of it, they had to scramble Raphael fighters. And someone uh, in, in the Air Force told me that the bill is, it's upwards of 60,000. They're thinking about the fuel, the manpower, the maintenance that has to come from a scramble, etc. It's not insignificant, uh, is it? It's not at all. Well, in, like in, in domestic, uh, in the domestic area, at first we had the disbelief that like a minister of the Social Democratic Party, which um, uh, advocates the fight against climate change and advocates like flight bans in, in Europe, uh, that he would have a hobby which he, he referred to as his secret garden, like fl fl sports, uh, flying sports uh, uh, planes. Um, he would have this hobby and then he wouldn't prepare himself properly for this flight through France. So um, what we learned uh, today in the press is that, in fact, the radio operator in France probably used, mis misspelled his, um, his flying code like that he uh, mixed up uh, an O with a D, or like, a, I think it's, um, he said Oscar instead of Delta, mm. when he tried to reach out to uh, mm. Alain Berset flying his uh, small Cessna. And Alain Berset um, apparently didn't react to it because he thought he was, uh, the, the radio operator was uh, talking to somebody else. And that is why the French uh, army then sent up the Rafale um, to um, accompany him or escort <laughs> him to the next... Uh, I, I love the notion of accompanying. <laughs> At least everyone's got their story straight now, uh, many days after this has happened. Uh, uh, time to go to Tokyo now, uh, where our Fiona Wilson is joining us, uh, just coming up to 1751 in the Japanese capital. Uh, good afternoon, Fiona. Hi, Tyler. I just had a little a gentle earthquake here. I was just watching oh. my, 
my ankle poise light shaking, but uh, all fine. <laughs> all, all fine. Well, let's maybe, maybe the, hopefully there's no aftershock uh, either now well, while we're on air or, or afterwards. Uh, Fiona, just uh, this, again, looking at the headlines uh, out of Japan uh, and, and also the news headlines a little bit uh, earlier. Uh, Taiwan, obviously, uh, one issue. And of course, uh, a, uh, yeah, a, a country which um, is where Japan has been much more outspoken uh, in terms of its uh, relation uh, geopolitically of late. Uh, we hear a bit of saber, rat- saber rattling uh, from uh, Beijing over this uh, Pelosi, upcoming Pelosi trip. But that's one thing. But the other story that's also making a lot of news in Japan, like it's been all over Europe, of course, there's the summer surge of COVID cases, but um, really sort of casting many things into doubt. And part of it is, is the tourism recovery, because there seems to be a lot of question marks as to what's uh, going to happen um, as we move into autumn. I know. I feel like we've been talking about this so much. And I was very optimistically saying, well, once the election is over and Kishida, the prime minister, won that comfortably, you know, really and should be in sort of cruise control now. But numbers have gone up massively and they hit 200,000 a day for the first time yesterday, actually, in Japan. So new highs. So that's really, you know unexpected for for just the average Japanese person. So I think at the moment, it's, you know, we're still thinking, when is tourism going to open? I know we've been able to have groups coming in, but this, um, the opening for individual tourists not happening. And I think there's a feeling that, you know, they dropped the testing on arrival for people coming back. That includes people like me who live in Japan and a bit of a question mark about whether that was a good idea or not. No, and, and also it seems that, uh, the, well, there's this talk and, and certainly the action, I guess, around having these these tour groups, that's been a bit of a stinker um, as well. If they were looking for some type of significant uptick, I think a lot of people who are the super Japan fans uh, haven't been so interested uh, in signing up for a bus tour around Kansai. Well, I know. I mean, that was always quite a strange decision, wasn't it, to have, uh, you know, tour groups only? Because as, as you know, you know, I mean, that's a very limited market. But maybe, you know, I think that was always the point. So they're testing the water. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be going too well. So we'll see. Isolation continues. Well, what about outbound? Uh, because, uh, of course, we have news that uh, Japan has the most powerful uh, passport uh, in, in the world, uh, and, and of course there are there are many metrics that go with that. Uh, you know, I, I've noticed uh, certainly uh, being in in Paris uh, and uh, and you know, other points around Europe over the past weeks. I do see Japanese, and they're not Japanese expats living in Europe. I think these are these are Japanese who are are outbound for the summer. Uh, again, not in big groups. It's it's more couples or groups of friends. Uh, but do you do you get a sense that uh, there is this venturing? Uh, beyond or or are the Japanese still you know hunkered down within within their own borders yeah I mean you're right they did they did get that that Henley index the passport index they were you know number one fifth year in a row you know they can visit 193 countries without visas great but actually it's quite difficult to encourage people at the moment I mean sort of anecdotally I know quite a lot of people who are now traveling um I have to say many of them have caught COVID in Europe. So I think those stories are starting to circulate. So I think the lag might be interesting. There's a, there's a certain anxiety, I think. You know, it's been a while since Japanese were really out in numbers. And I think they, they hear about, uh, you know, the maskless world of Europe. And they're a little bit worried about that. But now I think people are, are eager to get, get going and, you know, they'll take their chances. Now, a couple of um, friends of Monocle uh, have been uh, just yeah, writing, and these are these are Japanese friends who said that they're they're now starting to protest a little bit when they're out on the street and and protesting by not wearing masks because, of course, the official guidance has been, 
you know, now you don't have to wear a mask, um, but of course everyone is still wearing a mask, or at least you know, the vast majority are. Um, but but now you've got sort of these pockets of of rebellion. Um, do you see this taking hold, or do we start to move back? Because obviously, yeah, the, you know, the, the lead story in most of the Japanese dailies that, that I've been looking at, of course, is this surge in, in numbers. Does, does that sort of whack things back at, from your view? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that is the headline. You know, in fact, the government's played it pretty cool and it's saying it's not going to do anything to restrict economic activity. I noticed on Twitter the state of emergency hashtag was trending uh, at the end of the week. And I thought, oh, crikey, do they know something I don't? But no state of emergency. I mean, people outside, it's difficult. It's very, very hot here. I know it's been hot all over Europe as well, but it's very hot and humid here. Very uncomfortable in masks. So, you know, I see people, I'm, I'm out walking my dog twice a day, and I notice around the park people are running without masks, walking dogs without masks. But in, indoors still, you know, 99.9% of people are in masks, and that's just become the, the norm. But I think outdoors it's actually pretty uncomfortable, and, you know, I think they're worried that people are going to keel over from heat stroke. So, you know, which, you is ha- which, is, which has happened. It's not just sort of a, a, a thing, is it? It's uh, there has been this warning that, uh, yeah, that this it's, it's not <laughs> great to be sort of mass when it's also 99 percent humidity as well. No, absolutely. They had record numbers. I think in June, the, the number of hospitalizations for heat stroke were, rec- in, you know, we had a very, very hot spell in June. Um, and, you know, I think really it, it doesn't feel like it's winding back in that way people are t- you know they're taking their stride they are definitely higher numbers but i think people are being quite sensible about it and just uh, i i imagine is or do you get the sense that um rainy season is officially over or is it uh, is it still uh, extended its uh, stay well, I mean, it, it was over, you know, shortest rainy season, finished earlier than ever. And we were all like, what? That that was the rainy season. And then, you know, we had these absolutely torrential. I mean, that's an understatement. Downpours in. We had them in Tokyo, you know, down in Kyushu. They really got hammered by the rain. I think, you know, this is not apparently rainy season. And I think many people are just saying this is the, you know, we're all hearing about climate change. This is one of the changes for Japan. These in- this increasing number of uh, summer deluges. I mean, they're absolutely, you know, terrible floods. The rivers were swollen beyond belief down in Kyushu. So I think this is rainy season over, but this is a sort of new normal for the summer. Indeed. Uh, Fiona Wilson, uh, our bureau chief in Tokyo. Uh, yeah, have a very good afternoon and uh, stay coolish uh, in that weather. Uh, just uh, before we go, uh, Emily, so you've got uh, something from Finland for us. We always sort of need a, a fun Finnish story. Uh, no, I can this time of you explain ready to... who the walrus is. Okay, who's the walrus? <laughs> so the walrus made uh, its way all the way from mid to northern Norway, all the way uh, via Kaliningrad and Estonia to Extraordinary. Hamina. Um, and unfortunately, so this is the sad bit, it did pass away eventually after oh. it had been filmed everywhere. An obituary um, was running the newspapers for him. And if um, the Finns became a huge fan of this particular walrus that was named Haminan Mursu in the end, um, and it will be available uh, for visit in the Finnish Museum of Natural History, um, I think starting in the fall. So it's become a bit of a thing. Um, it's uh, apparently 25 to 30 years um, of age. Uh, the sad side, again, not to end on a too gloomy of a story, <laughs> that it's thanks to climate change that he had to leave. Had to leave. Um, exactly. And it probably got too toasty in the Baltic. But anyway, you're looking a bit <laughs> sort of puzzled by it all, Christoph. But anyway, <laughs> anyway we will be checking in with you from Geneva uh, as well. Uh, thanks to Emily is our uh, Christoph Lenz, Andrew Tuck, Emma Nelson. Uh, also, Carl Blondell joining us from Reykjavik. Fiona Wilson was with, for us uh, in Tokyo. Uh, also, Desiree 
Bandley, Reese James, and Emma Nelson. Uh, and of course, our studio manager, studio manager in Zurich was Desiree Bandley. Uh, and also Nora Hall back in London. Also thanks to our Chris Chermak and Carlotta Rebello in the Ukraine. I'm Tyler Brule. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. Have a very good week. Goodbye.